0: to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest episode in our Bayer Tapestry series, presented by David Musgrove.
1: Welcome to History Extra's Unraveling the Bayer Tapestry series. This is episode two, How Was the Tapestry Made? My name is David Musgrove. I'm content director for BBC History Magazine and HistoryExtra.com. I'm very much fascinated by the Biotapestry, and I've written a book, along with Professor Michael Lewis, a tapestry expert and member of the Tapestry Scientific Committee, all about it. The book is published by Thames & Hudson in April 2021 and is called The Story of the Tapestry: Unraveling the Norman Conquest. Now, in this five-part series, I've invited a series of experts to join Professor Lewis and I to talk our way through what we know about the tapestry and how we should understand it. These are panel discussions, but I do drop in with little interruptions now and then to make sure you're all following the flow. In this second episode, we're looking at the question of how the tapestry was made and by whom. The tapestry is currently on display in its museum in the town of Bayeux, Normandy, and it's been in Bayeux for many centuries. We've already talked in the first episode about where it was most likely made, with a general consensus, though some dispute, that Canterbury and Kent is the most likely location, and when, again most likely within a couple of decades of the 1066 conquest, so in the last third of the 11th century. But we're going to find out more now about the actual way in which it was put together, and what that tells us about the tapestry story more generally. Professor Lewis and I are in the company of two more experts, Professor Gail Owen Crocker, Professor Emeritus at Manchester University. She's written widely on the tapestry and you can read many of her papers in the uh, collected book, The Biotapestry Collected Papers. Gail particularly takes an interest in medieval dress, textiles and literature. Also we have Dr Alexandra Lester-Macon, a professionally trained embroiderer, and textile archaeologist specializing in early medieval embroidery and she's author of The Lost Art of the Anglo-Saxon World. So, The tapestry, in basic terms, the tapestry, as we have it, is a little under 70 metres or 225 foot long and about 50 centimetres wide, 20 inches top to bottom, with the central frieze showing the main narrative action of the story and then upper and lower borders showing other things. Composed of nine separate panels, pieces of linen of varying lengths, and the artwork was stitched onto the linen with woollen thread of various colours. So that's a very, very basic summation of, of what it is. Um, but I'm going I'm to throw this at you, Alex, to start with. Perhaps you could explain why we're incorrect to call it a tapestry and we should really describe it as an embroidery.
0: Um, of course. Um, a tapestry is normally a woven um, piece of textile. You see a lot of them from the me- later medieval period onwards, um, particularly in palaces and, say, National Trust properties. Um, and they're normally hangings, but the Bayer tapestry is actually an embroidery. so this uh, it wasn't woven. We have a ground fabric and then embroiderers worked the pattern on top. they stitched it with the woolen threads as a separate process.
1: OK, but everyone's uh, everyone's all right of us still calling it a, a tapestry, I hope, just because that's what uh, uh, how it tends to be known um, uh, these
2: days. Well, so, it comes from the French tapisserie, which means a hanging, a curtain, etc. So we're really borrowing their word rather than using the English technical word tapestry. Exactly. So... What
1: we've got at the moment is the uh, the original stitched together embroidered panels, but they're laid on a on a further linen backing strip, uh, which is numbered numbered from one to fifty eight, uh, and that was attached at some point. We don't know exactly when. Some point before the eighteenth century, and then various other backing strips uh, and panels have been put on over the years but at the moment we've got uh, a Felton Lennon strip which was attached in the 1980s when there was a, a conservation project and there was also uh, an opportunity then to take some photographs of the back of the uh, of the tapestry which has been very useful for for our, our current understanding. I suppose one of the things that perhaps before we talk about how it was made so um, Michael what, what
3: do you think its current state of conservation is? Well first of all you know kind of from a an exhibit sort of perspective. It's obviously displayed back on itself, so it's in a, a looped case that goes back on itself, um, and it's behind glass. Um, and obviously, that was the case that was made for the tapestry in the 1980s. So 1982, it sort of opened and it was displayed like that. Um, as far as the object itself inside is is concerned. I mean, it is obviously very, very ancient, you know, nearly a thousand years old um and um its condition, I think you know considering that is is pretty good now, obviously, when you look at the tapestry close up, it's obvious that there's tears, there's cuts, there's stains, there's all sorts of marks on it i mean there's there's a there's many many of those um and it's clear the way that it's hung that it's more vulnerable in some parts than than other parts as well, so it's certainly a fragile document, but probably. Uh, an unbelievable survivor considering
1: what what do you think alex how do you rate its uh, current uh, state of conservation
0: um i agree with everything michael said um, and also there's the um French conservators check on on it is it yearly michael uh, yeah, yeah yeah
3: every year yeah
0: yeah and um i know that they are um they're pleased with its. it Its current state I mean we're extremely lucky that it survived for as long as it has Um, when you consider that documentary sources from the period state that houses had hangings possibly similar to this and they've not survived Um, so we're very lucky um, that we've got it and I think Michael's right that the, the state that it's in at the moment is very good
1: And, and Gail, I mean, there have been various efforts at restoring it over the years, and it has been knocked about a bit, hasn't it? You know, the the end panels are are not in in
2: good shape, for instance. Um, The the uh, end is missing. Yeah. And um, the the first scene is, is patched. And I think that's something you don't appreciate unless you see it in the flesh, that a lot of it is patched. And, of course, if stitching goes through a patch, that's not original stitching. So there are a lot of restorations. Um, Michael talked about the way it's displayed. Of course, displayed in this sort of hairpin, you can't see the whole of it at the same time. And that is a pity because you can't see the interrelationships between the uh, episodes in the narrative that, that they've chosen. So it would be wonderful if it could be displayed so one could see it all. Um, but at the moment, it's displayed Hanging straight down, and of course the weight of the wall, uh, it is inclined to pull downwards. So that is probably not too good for it. Maybe it should be displayed flat or angled.
1: And it has, I mean, as 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 you've all said, there it has survived for um for for many centuries now. So it is remarkable that it does uh, survive at all. Um. Alex, you mentioned there a little bit about um, uh, th- those documentary references to other um, other other embroideries. Um, you've written about this um, extensively. What do we know about the tradition in which uh, the, the bio-tapestry sits?
0: Um, so, embroidery produced in early medieval England um, was it was an art form. Um, the evidence we have so far shows that it was the the profession but also um, the occupation of um, women Um, and we know that if they excelled in embroidery that they were highly praised for it Um, and we have examples surviving that are um, made from wool um, from wool and linen as the bare tapestry is but also these these lovely silk and gold um, embroideries as well so the Bear Tapestry sits within um, this rich material culture from the period, but it also has links back to um, a Scandinavian heritage with um, the hangings, the, the depiction of the story, the, the layout of it, um, the fact that it's worked wool on linen. Um, and as I said earlier, there's documentary evidence that in elite houses, that these kind of um hangings that were telling stories of victory and battle and heroic deeds was something that, um, that were visible for um, in these houses and for visitors to see and obviously discussion points as well as keeping out drafts and, and making these places more comfortable for people. So, um,
1: Gail, do you suspect, uh, based on what Alex has said, do you suspect it wouldn't have been, you know, it's a rarity now, um, obviously there's only one by a tapestry, but did you suspect um, in the 11th century uh, it would have been
2: uh, more commonplace? Well, we know that the widow of Alderman Bilchnoth, donated a, a, a hanging of some kind after his death, which depicted his deeds. So we do know that there was that at least. But I think the the very length of the bio-tapestry must mean it was unusual. Um, Someone must have either been very rich to own uh, a a hall big enough to display that, or it must have been intended for a church, which a lot of people think. Uh, And the church was rich too. So I don't think in your ordinary home you'd have had anything on this scale or probably this shape because it's very narrow as well as very long so it's it's made for a particular space i think
3: michael do you want to throw anything in here Well, I think the size of it and the shape of it is an interesting thing, actually, because obviously it does suggest it's made for a particular purpose. The the reality is that we know, um, as Alex has explained, that in um, the kind of stories and narratives, particularly from Scandinavia that we have, um, that these sorts of of objects or or tapestries or embroideries or or whatever, they would have been used um, to kind of make sure or insulate um, houses um, and keep them warm. They would have been sort of necessary to have some sort of fabric, I would have thought, to try and help with insulation and that sort of stuff. So there's a practical aspect to these things. But also, as, as Gail says, um, you know, obviously there's a big tradition of, of textiles um being used um for an ecclesiastical sort of context as well not saying that's necessarily uh, explains the Bay of tapestry but you know cer- certainly you know we have a lot of um there's a lot of literary sources that talk about garments being made for kings and other sorts of people as well so you know <laughs> it's difficult because what we have is just so fragmentary of this tradition actually. Um, And I know Alex has kind of brought together as many pieces as possible um, of that, but it is pretty small and, you know, they just give us uh, indications of what was sort of going on rather than um, a, a complete context. And, and, I think it is interesting that it's a, a long sort of narrative sequence, um, because as Alex says, we do have kind of narrative stories um, that are uh, kind of um, textiles or embroideries, that sort of thing in a smaller scale from Scandinavia. Um, but, but yes, I mean, you'd think that they are they could have been a tool for, te- for telling stories and stuff like that, as, as well as just kind of, I don't know, just having them for decorative purposes, I guess.
2: Um, the elite were peripatetic. And the wonderful thing about a textile hanging is that you can roll it up and take it with you when you go to your other castle or great hall. So although I said I think it was made for a particular space because of its shape, uh, it was always potentially movable.
3: There's something that's really quite interesting about that in terms of if you think about not the, the grand buildings that people had, but the smaller dwellings that people probably lived in, And the fact that they would have been wooden, et cetera, and obviously textiles would have insulated or helped insulate those those places. Um, And ironically, um, although we've talked about the fragility of textile works, actually, um, they probably had a longer life than the houses that some of the people lived in, ironically. So like Gail says, you could have rolled it away and taken it to your new house when your old one sort of fell down or started to fall into disrepair. So yeah, they're quite practical wallpaper in a way, aren't they, you could argue? Yeah.
2: And there are um, stories where people hang special hangings. Um, There's a a Scandinavian saga and there's Beowulf where they they put up special hangings for a a celebratory feast. So if you were rich enough to have more than one set, you could change them.
0: And also, I mean, there's the evidence, isn't there, that particularly within the church um, and you have Pope, Gregory the Great's talking about, um, he's talking about imagery and, and that um teaching of the Christian faith through imagery. And then you have the um, the documentary evidence talking about churches having hangings, mainly of silk and precious fa- fa- fabrics and threads like that. But so this, the idea of hang- having a hanging within different settings, um, it wasn't unusual to... Um, Early medieval society it would have been something that they would have known and they would have been able to read the stories and and the messages that were being put across through them um which i think is quite important for us to understand as well
1: let's just pause for a second okay so we've heard about the sort of embroidery traditions within which the bio tapestry sits For the sake of clarity, let's call it an embroidery here. You might have been a bit surprised to hear there are so many layers and backing strips to it. So let's get right back to basics and find out about the linen or ground fabric on which the embroidery was worked. To remind you, the embroidery sits on nine separate linen panels of varying lengths, which have been joined together to form the whole piece. It's super helpful for purposes of understanding how it was made to get to grips with this linen base cloth. So I asked Gail to explain more, and particularly to comment on the idea that there was originally one long piece of linen made, which was then cut up to make the panels. She does talk about selvage, which might be an unfamiliar phrase to you, but don't worry, she explains straight away what that means.
2: Alex and I have both been given access to an unpublished report, and um, it it shows that the selvages, this is the the reinforced edges, which survive on only a few of the pieces. Well, they may survive on more, but they're covered by ribbon if they're there. Um, They are not all the same. So even if there was uh, an original piece that was uh, slit into two, uh, and its two selvages were different. There are still more selvages than, than you can account for. So there's certainly a, more than one piece. And there are subtle differences in the second stretch of linen. It's more different than the others are different from each other. Uh, it, it's, it's slightly coarser woven as well.
3: There have been theories that have suggested that the tapestry was of one length of linen and that those have been cut up. And the way that they've cut up, you can say something about the context of which the embroidery was was made for because of the way that they kind of fit together. Um, as Gail and Alex says, there's, a, there's, a, there's another way of looking at that as well, and, and that, that might not be the case but um, there's been quite a few studies, hasn't there, of trying to try and work out the length of the tapestry from the bits that survive, essentially.
1: What, what do we know about the linen industry? What, what, how how would that piece of linen have been produced, and and what sort of people might have been making it? Gail, is that
2: that's probably something well, that you're, you're it's on. It's flax, to... which grows, and it's a a long, arduous, and smelly process uh, to produce thread from it. It it has to be um, retted to get rid of the outer um, coating of the stems, and then the bundles of fibres have to be released from inside. That's that's, uh, giving a a very short account of it. And then it it has to be spun, Uh, and that was all done by hand, of course, until the Industrial Revolution, um, using uh, spit, usually. So every medieval thread that anybody wore or sat on or was kept warm by, has passed between some woman's finger and thumb. And if it's linen, it's probably passed (laughs) through her her saliva as well. Um, And this piece of linen, uh, or pieces of linen, were long. So they must have been woven on the new loom, the new flat loom with treadles which when it was first introduced round about the year 1000 was a man's machine. So women traditionally did the spinning. Um, Men did that weaving on the the flat loom. Um, Women or men could have done the stitching of the pieces together. Uh, Traditionally, women do the embroidery. But of course, in the later Middle Ages, we know there were male embroiderers and there may have been male embroiderers even then. So it's it's not just women's work. Like uh, a lot of the the tradition says, men must have done the weaving. Uh, and, of course, the monastery where it was probably designed was a male place as well. So let's have some uh, gender <laughs> equity in the discussion of it.
3: <laughs> I mean, I did have a thought, actually, on this, which obviously we kind of reflected on before about the scientific work that may or may not happen um, or could happen. I should say, because obviously there is a fascination in terms of, you know, how these different parts of linen kind of relate to each other. Um, As has been suggested, they may or they may not. And obviously scientific work could test that. Um, And there's also um, a kind of a kind of related sort of issue about where these Where they were sourced, you know, are they sourced in the same places? You know, the material for them is it from the same place or not? And I think one of the things that is fascinating about the tapestry, which I think a lot of people would presume has sort of already happened, is, you know, lots of scientific tests and works um, using chemicals and God knows what else to try and understand some of these basic questions. But the reality is, you know, some of this basic stuff, it it would seem, we just don't know the answer to.
2: What has already been done is. Doing a thread count, how many threads per centimetre in warp and weft, that's a fairly um, established thing to do. Um, And looking at the selvage, how many thicker threads are there in the selvage? Are they all the same thickness? That is what's in the unpublished report. But the science has opened up and could do so much more. Um, Are the the different parts of the tapestry grown from the same plant even? Um, Or is it the same species of plant in different places? I, I, I think probably science is on the way to discovering that. And that could really open it up. Let's take a
1: pause for a second here to regroup we've just had a long and hopefully interesting discussion there on the physical materials used to actually create the tapestry. I think that's worth briefly reflecting on, because it's pretty easy to glance at this as a piece of art, or as a historical document, and forget the fact that a lot of hands went into making this piece of linen and embroidery. It is in that sense a direct link to the skills and craftwork of people who lived almost a thousand years ago. The industrial process to create the linen, the arduous, smelly affair that Gail described, with the threads moistened by women's saliva, takes us right back to the 11th century. We're about to hear more from Alex about the complicated logistics that would have been required to allow for the embroidery to have been committed to the linen, the gathering and colouring of the wool, setting up and tightening panels on wooden frames, and the sorts of spaces and light that would have been needed for the skilled needle workers to do their work notwithstanding the complications of transmitting the original design to the fabric. This fantastic and rare survival of medieval embroidery affords us the opportunity to think about the people behind the art as much as the art itself. So it's the materiality of the tapestry that is as much a rich source for us to study as the storyboard it relates. Anyway, back to Alex to explain how the stitching was actually carried out.
0: Um, Yeah, so I've argued um, in some published works that... Um, the Because the panels were so big and because um, it was such a collaborative project that there were probably, um, most likely, more than one person working on a panel at a time, which leads to the conclusion that the ground fabric, the linen, would have to be what we call framed up. Um, and this is where the linen is attached to four pieces of wood that are slotted together to make a frame. Um, this holds the ground fabric taut um, and it means that also that more than one person can work on one section of the embroidery at the same time. So you have your ground fabric on set up on your frame that is obviously propped up on. Today, we would prop it up on trestles um, and then you could have people sat around it at set distances um, at the top and the bottom of it, depending on the working environment and space, etc. You then have uh, your woollen threads. And um, the design, Gail and I both agree with this, that the design would have been transferred onto the ground fabric before um, embroidery commenced. Um, and then the, by looking and analysing the stitches, it is obvious that um, embroiderers were given set areas to work um, and they work them to specific formula. So generally, it's you do your the outline first and then you do the filling. And then um, within what I call motifs, say for a horse, for example, those motifs were split up into other smaller working areas as well. And it's obvious from the way the stitching's been um, constructed that the embroiderers weren't looking at a horse, they were looking at the area that they were stitching and they were concentrating on that particular area. Um so the outlines are worked in what we call stem stitch, uh, which is a line stitch. Um and you see stem stitch uses an outline. Ooh, well, people use it today, so it's a long history. And then the fillings are generally the ones that people notice the most, that's um called laid work. Some people call it Bayer stitch. Um, and that's um, a twofold process because it's threads laid up on one on top of the other to create it. But then you get some areas, not many, but some areas that use chain stitch um, and there's some, and some of the areas, um, non-line areas, that use rows and rows of stem stitch packed together in order to create a dense coloured area of fabric. And so they would work on these um, these areas, moving from one area to the next as needed. Um, there's also evidence that um, buildings such as castles or the buildings that we can view, like theater, stages on a theatre, they were probably worked by teams of embroiderers, and the same teams or team may have um, completed all of those. Um, which obviously then leads to the conclusion that um, all the panels must have been worked within one building or a number of buildings close together in order for this um, to facilitate this movement of people to where they were needed Um, and because of the project being such a huge one there must have been an overall project manager overseeing organizing people organizing the materials um, and things like that so very complex really it's not just about sitting down and doing a few stitches over where it wouldn't have been a cup of tea then but that kind of thing it it was a proper professional setup
1: really and and presumably the, the the space in which it was done would have to have been quite a large space because these these panels, some of them are are quite long,
0: aren't they? they are yes, um so yeah, the spaces would have to have accommodated that. whether the panels were um, as, because what you can do is when you've attached a ground fabric to a frame, you can roll and unroll it on the frame so you have less space uh you need less space because there's less um of the embroidery uh unrolled and you just work on the bit that's that's visible um but that that needs more investigation so the spaces would have to have accommodated larger areas and particularly cuz you're storing your materials as, as well it's not just about sitting around the embroidery frame and embroidering you've you've got your materials and everything else um so yeah
1: and obviously, you would have needed quite a lot of wool as well, wouldn't you? So, um
0: <laughs> yes, a lot of wool, which is a lot of preparation and a lot of dyeing, and um yeah, so there's a lot of, of course, sort of background logistics going on behind this as well. Um, and it would be I would love to be able to. This is this is how sad I am. I would love to be able to do some research looking at um the, the colours to see the variation in colours and to see if that's down to what we would now call dye lots, different um, batches being dyed at different times or whether it's down to fading and thing over, over time um, and to see what we could work out about this, the logistics, the back room um, work going on from that
2: sort of thing as well. Sure. Gail, do you want to um, add I something to that? Can I yeah. Yes. Uh, you need a good light to do embroidery and medieval windows were tiny. So I wonder where they did it. And I do wonder if we can rethink the frame. I've seen embroiderers in Madeira working in their doorways on their knees. And they produce the most beautiful work and it isn't pulled uh, as you would expect because they're working without a frame. Uh, That's not an old tradition. It's 18th or 19th century. I'm not saying it's a medieval tradition. It's, It's just that that's the way... It's done, and they do great big tablecloths and things like that on their knee. Uh, what do you think about that, Alex? And they they would have the light of the the doorway if they were able to to do that.
0: Yes, it's um, it's a possibility. I mean, our it, it, nobody's actually researched um, embroidery equipment, so we we don't know of any surviving um, frames and things. I found through my PhD research an image of um, a, a f- possible embroidery frame um, in a in a document a, a manuscript. Um, but that's really the only image we've got from that early a period. So it that is a possibility. It these are all really exciting ideas and um, things that need to be investigated further, I think. Um, for, through experimental archaeology and other practical projects as well as um, trawling um, documentary and art history sources and things like that um, and I think it's really interesting it, it could be, make a really interesting project to see how um, fibres and um, React to being worked in different ways.
1: So it's, it's a really interesting question: is it, the sort of the logistics of, of how this might have been made? Michael, mm. y- I know you've done a, a bit of stitching yourself into uh, <laughs> into one of these uh, uh, <laughs> replica tapestries. So you're you're a great expert as well. What do you think about how it was made?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, on that note about kind of doing a replica, I think sometimes you can learn things from doing that sort of activity. And that was the the battle tapestry, which I was invited to go along and um, do a little bit of stitching on. And I think one thing that I found quite fascinating, actually, is although, I mean, Alex is going to completely disagree with me here, I know, but um, although you obviously need a lot of skill to do this well... Um, you can do quite well with some limited skill, if that, with with not a much skill. So I was quite surprised, actually, how good I was at this. To be honest, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think I could have um, done the Bayer Tapestry no problem, um, single-handedly.
0: But, um, <laughs>
3: single single-handedly. Well, that's the question, isn't it? You'd could still I have be done at it
0: today? <laughs>
3: could I have done it single-handedly? Well, um, Dave and myself, we saw a lady um, who'd done this massive. Um, facsimile that's the well not facsimile but it's the this um black gold tapestry that we mentioned in the last podcast um this this black um um gold tapestry where the, it was a lady who's done it on her own um and it's the full size of the Bayer tapestry as well it's taken her about 10 years so yeah maybe if I got on with it I could I could do it in time but anyway it's seriously <laughs> certainly. seriously I mean I, seriously I kind of do obviously see quite similar to Alex in terms of the Um, the manufacture or the making of this piece. I think think what's interesting is that, you know, I think most of us do see that, you know, more than one person, several people are working on this. And and I think there's something there as well, isn't there, in terms of, you know, how many people could you possibly have working at the same time before it starts to get a bit kind of overwhelming. Um, And also the kind of sequence of them as well. Um, I mean, as you know, in some of the work that I've done, I've kind of suggested that there's a simplification in the tapestry process as it goes on. And I I, I know other people won't necessarily agree with that, but um, that does seem to me that maybe there could have been certain parts um, or certain lengths, if you like, um, produced um, uh, simultaneously and then other pieces kind of added on um, a bit later on. Um, I'm not saying that means that the design wasn't kind of sketched out in full necessarily. I, I kind of, You know, that doesn't preclude that at all. Um, But the actual embroidery work is, it it seems to me, more simplified. But I think where Alex was talking about understanding more about the the kind of practical aspects of it in terms of the, um, you know, we talk sometimes about the hands at play, don't we? Is it the case that certain embroiderers with more skill were working on key scenes and people with less skill, maybe, or just less well-paid, perhaps, um, or maybe not paid at all, any of them, I don't know. But anyway, maybe there's others that were just kind of working on elements that weren't so important. Um, And like Alex says, in terms of the the dye, there is some sort of scientific work that's starting now, um, looking at the dyes, um, non-invasive techniques to look at the dyes. Um, And I think that will tell us similar things as well. You know, where were they investing the resources? And You know, From what we've learned from manuscripts as well, which obviously we'll probably pop on to a bit later, but in terms of manuscripts, it's clear sometimes within manuscripts um, certain colours are used or certain minerals or elements are used within the colours that you don't actually see. Um, So they're there as part of the creation of the work. Now, I'm not saying that's the case in terms of the Bayer Tapestry, but of course it might be the case that some parts... Um, are coloured in particular ways for particular reasons, or there's an investment in more expensive, perhaps wools or dyes or colours or whatever um, in particular parts. I mean, and that I think would be really fascinating to understand a bit more about. All Nobody's
2: noticed any glaring differences between the colours in the sections of linen. There might be a favorite colour in a, a particular scene, for instance, but nobody said, Oh look it's obvious the second piece of linen is done somewhere different because the colours are quite, quite different they're not it's a harmonious whole even if there are different dialogues that specialist testing reveals to us i don't think the differences were uh, evident to the, the first audience uh, can i
3: just come back on that because i because i yeah. do i think looking at it in the flesh, that does seem to be the case. But I think what I'm quite interested in is whether science tells us something different to that. Because what we observe by looking at the tapestry, and what what we think is there, and what is actually there, might be two slightly separate things. I take your point that on the surface of it, it doesn't see. It seems that the palette is basically the same throughout, although it is oddly used, as we all know. You know, <laughs> certain colours are used on things which we probably wouldn't use them on, for example. Um, But also, I mean, again, I've been recently looking at this manuscript that I've mentioned before, the Old English Hexitute, and the construction of the drawings in that I found absolutely fascinating because that's really interesting because it's unfinished um, as a book. And on the surface of it, you get what you would assume to be the similar sort of way of producing the Bayer Tapestry. You know, you have an outline that you infill, et cetera, et cetera. But what seems to be the case in that manuscript, to very briefly explain it, is that you have a very faint outline in a a, a sort of a pencil or, um, well, it not be a pencil, but you know what I mean, a very light outline. Uh, Then you have blocks of colour that's filled in. Then the outlines are drawn. And then someone goes away and does some of the text around it. Um, Then you get someone doing more detailed drawings to kind of fill it out a little bit. Um, And then someone decides to put borders around the the text and things. So you get these lots of different stages where there's this, I mean, a bit like Alex was talking about in terms of the embroidery, back and forward, different people doing different bits, perhaps. Um, I mean, so I think it's kind of completely fascinating how complicated, actually. I think, for me, I find it unnecessarily complicated. But it seems that they have these really complicated processes of passing backwards and forwards the production of these objects.
2: The... um... The manuscripts that are coloured, as opposed to being being done just in brown ink, of course have to be uh, put it down and 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 come back again later process because the ink has to dry. So if you have a figure with legs one colour and a tunic another colour, you can't just draw it all as one thing. But if you have an underdrawing, you can do the underdrawing in one one sketch, and then you have to come back and ink it in, or in, in the case of your hexa you paint it in. But that in itself is several processes, a, a, a different action for each colour. And that is a bit like embroidery where you have to have a new thread and it's on its needle for for every different colour in an item. And I
0: think what's interesting about that is the fact that with the embroidery, when you look at um, the photographs of the reverse, you can actually see that because of the way stitches that have been worked later impinge on those that have been worked first, that it has been worked in stages, um, as I said earlier, like the outline first and, the, and then the filling. But because you don't have to wait for threads to dry um, in that sense, it could they could be worked consecutively um, quite quickly after one another unless you have someone doing the outlines and then someone else coming along and and doing the fillings although there is evidence that some of the outline threads were then used to fill in small areas as well Um, so you can see certain parallels working between the different media um, give or take things like paint having to dry and things like that which I think is quite a fascinating subject in itself really, Um, and um, could have a lot of crossover, um, particularly if we're thinking the designer came from a manuscript um, background uh, and that kind of thing. There's obviously a lot of discussion and collaborative work going on, um, which could influence one media or the other.
1: Let's take time for another moment to reflect. We've learned a lot just there on how exactly the medieval embroiderers would have gone about actually getting the woolen threads onto the linen base, and what a potentially complicated business it would have been, with many different hands involved. Plus, we've learned how science has been helping us to interrogate that process more fully. What we haven't talked about, though, is how the embroiderers actually knew what to stitch. How did they know where they were supposed to put the horses, what Harold should look like, how a castle should be depicted, and what colour things should have been? Though, as Michael has already mentioned, the choice of colours is sometimes surprising. It would be odd indeed if the fields of 11th century England were filled with green and blue horses, for instance. We're going to delve now into the process of the transmission of the design to the linen. That leads us into the question of where the designer actually got his or her ideas from. And you're going to hear us chatting about some of the curiously titled manuscripts, such as the Old English Hexateuch, Prudentius's Psychomachia, and Junius XI. Don't be put off if those names are unfamiliar. These are the illustrated texts that are thought to have provided inspiration for some of the designs in the tapestry, despite the fact that their subject matter, mostly Old Testament stories, was somewhat different to the narrative of the 1066 conquest. Anyway, on we go, let's get back to hear more about the design. I'd just like to try and nail down how the design would have got on to the linen. So um, we've talked about it being sketched out with some sort of charcoal, or it being, or we haven't talked about it, but there is the possibility that it could have been pricked on. How did the images get on to the linen? Do you think, Gail?
2: Do you want to give, give well, it? Well, it could have been inked on uh, uh, initially. You you can draw on linen with ink, or they could have used lead point. They could have used silver point, or they could have used charcoal. I don't myself think they would have done done the pricking and pouncing, because it's such an enormous task. We we know pricking and pouncing was done later. This is where you have the design on um, parchment or leather. You prick tiny holes along the outlines, then lay it down and force charcoal through the holes, so then you get a, a dotted line, which you then join up. Um, I've tried it. Alex is a professional embroiderer. She's done it much more than I have done, but I, f- I found it tedious and and <laughs> not efficient. Um, it would be easier just to draw direct on your linen, surely. Um, there's So during that period,
0: there's evidence that prick and pouch was used for some manuscript illuminations. it? It's the Lindisfarne Gospels, I think.
2: Lindisfarne um, Gospels has it. The Harley Salter has, oh, okay. has, has hard point, which right. is just scratching on right. the parchment, and it has lead point.
0: But I would agree with Gail that for something of this magnitude and the cost of vellum, um, as well as... Uh, the time it takes to use the prick and pounce method um, means that really, I I doubt they would have used that method for for the bare tapestry. Um, Gail has done some research with Maggie Neen, who's an illustrator on different methods of possibly um, getting the design accurately onto the ground fabric using templates and things like that. So there are other options I think, but I think we can say that the prick and pounce method wouldn't have been used in this case. There's too many factors again um, making it more of a negative thing than a, than a positive thing.
2: But I do think we all agree that you do have to have an underdrawing yeah. to do embroidery, except just little bits, uh, especially if you're working an image upside down, which the people working at the top of the tapestry. Would, would have to have done.
0: And, um, and I think also because there's so many elements that are sort of extremely similar. But if you look at the, just the animals in the borders, for example, um, they're so similar that there must have been some drawing on there because you, you couldn't have stitched, well, I, I wouldn't have been able to stitch them as, um, as accurately
2: the same on so many different ver- uh, numbers of them. You say they're similar, but they're all individual as well. Uh, You might might have a pair of animals, but they will have different colours. Or you might have a pair of birds and one will have a wing up and the other will have a wing down. And this is part of the the difference that gives the vitality to the biotapestry, as opposed to a, a woven silk, which is produced mechanically and produces identical creatures. The bio-tapestry creatures are all individual,
0: but but would you agree that they're similar enough that they would have to been drawn on in order? Because I mean, you've argued that yes. the templates were used,
2: we, and so we you think.
0: you can turn templates to give each creature um, its own individual character, but yes. they've got they've got that similarity
2: to other ones throughout. Well, Maggie Neen, who you mentioned before, has has done the the legwork on this. She's the artist, and uh, she looked at the wings of birds, and they're done with a template, which is also used for shields. They're wing-shaped shields, and the same templates are used over and over again for for the most unlikely things. Um, drinking horns are the same template as the Archbishop's Maniple over over his arm. Um, Little little roof tiles um, occur in all sorts of different different things, including the fallacies of horses. It's a a fascinating thing. So the templates aren't confined to one border or both borders. The same set of templates are used um, in the main register and in the borders. And the same templates are used in all the nine pieces of linen. Which then leads to the conclusion it was drawn onto the fabric. Yeah. It was drawn onto the fabric in in, in one operation, even if the pieces of linen were distributed to be embroidered in different places, as I, I, I'm i sure they were, yes, because that, because that meant the work could progress faster if people were working simultaneously on the laborious embroidery process. So we're talking about
1: uh, a sketch of some sort onto the linen and and possibly using some sort of templating for the for the actual images well, to well, to be designed.
2: Well, I would query the use of the word sketch because I think of sketch as being something rough. I think there is there are sketches. I think there are preliminary sketches in some of the medium. And then I think there's a carefully drafted out cartoon put on the linen which the embroiderers have to follow. And I think that is done with, uh, with grids. Uh, I think you have a, a square plan for a lot of the figures. They fit into a square. Um, and I think the templates are used to do that. But I think probably somebody else sketched out what they wanted drafted. So how was that done? Um, Did they do it on pieces of parchment or, as Maggie and I have recently suggested, on pieces of linen? Um, There is in Saint-Cathedral in France a piece of linen that has been thought to be a preliminary cartoon for an embroidery. It's got several registers, um, each of them almost as tall as the main register of the biotapestry, tapestry but it's very cramped up with wires. And somebody has attempted to embroider a bit of it, but it would be impossible to embroider because the design's too cramped. And uh, that is apparently drawn in ink. I haven't seen it, but the, the publication says it's drawn in ink on the linen. And having been made aware of this by my colleague Francis Pritchard, uh, I sent for high-resolution photographs, which were taken specially for us. And it's made me wonder if perhaps the preliminary sketches of the biotapestry were drawn on pieces of linen like that, perhaps just drawn cramped up. And then somebody came along and used the drafting techniques, the templates, the grid, and put it onto the linen as a proper cartoon. The advantage of using linen is that it's it's reusable. You can wash it and use it again. Whereas if you're using um, parchment, it's terribly expensive. And if you've pricked it, uh, you can't then use it again. Uh, So I think this is a new idea that um, Maggie and I came up with in a recent publication. And I'd really like to know what other people think about it. Michael, what do you think? You've been quiet for a little while.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've just been listening. I found it quite fascinating. I mean, I, I think the reality is that there's lots of different things that could have happened between those possibilities. Um, in my view, I mean, I'm not saying that the tapestry was just sort of sketched out um, as, as 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 Gail says, you know, using that word as, as a kind of a light touch basic uh, design, but it could have been quite a... I think it could have been quite a very simply sketched-out design that allowed people then to embellish as they want. And maybe that's what you see perhaps more in the borders than in the main freeze, but that could happen. Or you could go all the way to what Gail suggests, to something much more organised and precise, um, which obviously, again, has these resource implications that we've sort of talked about before. I mean, my hunch is that there was some sort of sketch... Um, or drawing, or probably drawing, I should use Gail rather than sketch, but yeah, there's some sort of drawing that is fairly considered in terms of what things should be and where they should be, but there was then on top of that maybe a certain degree of autonomy that's given to the embroiderers. And certainly we see mistakes in the tapestry, which to me suggests that that they're not completely following things. Sometimes, as Alex inferred, that they follow things and then get it sort of wrong. So they're following the shapes rather than what they see. So for example, if you're working on the embroidery upside down, then you are following a shape, not what you see as a figure necessarily. Um, And that happens. We know that those mistakes occur. But then there's some that are completely, you know, crazy mistakes that are made in the embroidery. And you kind of think, well, you know, was that down to the interpretation or was that down to a bit of, you know, somebody being a bit kind of idle or whatever? But essentially... Yeah, I kind of go with the idea that there's a of at least a basic sort of drawing that people then follow for the embroidery work. I think, I mean, we haven't talked about it yet, but the kind of relationship between the tapestry and the manuscripts. I mean, if you were to copy something from a manuscript and then put it into the tapestry, what we see from the manuscripts that may have influenced the tapestry is that there's a divergence in the design. Even if they're similar to them, they're not the same as them. They're not, they're not being directly copied, they've they've just been influencing the design of the
2: tapestry. Suppose they've been remembered. Remember, uh, there wasn't paper in those days. There weren't multiple copies of books. And so if you were being educated in a monastery, you might spend a year learning a book. And if it was an illustrated manuscript, the illustrations were there to help you remember the text. They were mnemonic. And then if you went on with your career later on and, and you were called to design the via tapestry, you, you might think, oh, that scene from the Hexerchuk is a, a, a really good idea. Um, it, 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 it's doing the same sort of thing as William was doing. I'll use that. Or or take the building of the ship, which I'm pretty sure the shipbuilding scene in the tapestry is taken from the hexateuch. The the tunics of the shipbuilders are very full. They're not like other tapestry tunics. They're just like Noah in the hexateuch. And Noah in the hexateuch straddles a plank one of the shipbuilders in the tapestry straddles a ship. It's quite impossible. He couldn't have got his legs on both sides of a ship big enough to take men and horses. So, but the position is the same. And then uh, Noah has a, a distinctive tool, a, a side axe. Another figure in the, the tapestry shipbuilding scene is using that very tool. Um, so I think that's that's deliberately taking something uh, that may only have been in memory and, and remembering that axe, remembering that position, remembering that tunic, and then reinterpreting it.
3: I think we do have model books um, from certainly slightly slightly later periods where drawings are copied from one source and then directly put into another. And, and certainly, I think in our book, David, we argue that there's the potential of a sort of model book being um, used. I mean, I take the point about, Kind of memory. What's interesting, I think, about the hexitude and the relationship with the tapestry is, is, like you say, there are some similarities, but also there's the case where there's some figures that are sort of cut up. Kind of going back to your template model before, you know, they've used a hand of this or an arm of that and a, a head of this and a, 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 a somebody doing this. To me, that is more than just memory. That may have been the fact that they've, you know, how many times would they've really created that drawing? And maybe they've been influenced by it. But it does seem to me that they've really got that in mind um, very closely. And that, I I don't think it can be just a memory. I think it has to be a physical replication somehow um, of one to the other. Um, although uh, there is a divergence, as I as I su- suggested, and and what is it, what explains that divergence is it the kind of transfer of the design onto the embroidery, which again, if you're kind of doing a free hand sketch, if you like, onto the embroidery might explain that better than if you're using a method like we've talked about with you know pricking up something.
1: Hmm. So you talked a bit about uh, manuscripts that may have influenced the design. What, what, what other sources might have uh, been influencing on, on the way the, uh, the design was put out? Um, Alex, have you got any views on that, on other, uh, other media that might have um, uh, guided the hand of the designer, if there was one designer?
0: Um, I think from a textile point of view, um, you can look at hangings that have survived within the Scandinavian world, um, and you can see similarities between layouts um in that respect. Um, I think from other sources, I think Gail and Michael are probably better answering that question.
2: I go, could you go want to on with the with the textiles, imported woven silks, with their pairs of animals on either side of a plant march or marching along. They they certainly influence the borders. And Michael, do you want to talk about the manuscripts?
3: I I think generally I think one thing we have to remember is what survives now is a is a very small percentage of what existed in the past and like Alex says I mean there could have been lots more um, wall hangings etc etc that could have influenced the tapestry that we'll just never know about because they just don't simply survive and also in that regard you know wall paintings in certain contexts obviously they're more likely to be in I would thought um you can tell me if I'm wrong Gail, but more likely to be in stone buildings than than any, sure, anywhere yeah, else yeah. so yes. so I mean but of again- course,
2: if they'd traveled to Rome uh, and religious people regularly traveled to Rome, they'd have seen them there.
3: Yeah, of course. So there's there's a there's a possibility of that. I mean, even, I think, you know, in material culture as we call it, you know, the small finds, the designs on jewelry, etc., perhaps, you know, you can sometimes see occasional kind of influences that um in Scandinavian art that may have kind of found its way to the Bay of tapestry, particularly in those kind of border elements of beasts and birds and that sort of stuff. But in terms of the illuminated manuscripts, I mean, we've talked about a few of them already. I mean, for my mind, the Old English hexateuch uh, which is in the British Library, and um, the Junius XI manuscript, which is in the Bodleian Library, are the two that are probably to have uh, the biggest impact, apart from um, Prudentis uh, um that's also in the British Library as well. So there's there's a, there's not many, but there's a number of heavily illustrated um, manuscripts, um, some of them very colourful, like the Hexateuch. some of them more line drawings, like Junius XI um, and what you see in the Bayer tapestry is this liveliness of the characters that you see in manuscripts. And there's also things like the Harley 603 Psalter that Gail kind of um, referred to as well, where you kind of have this liveliness of the figures. They seem to dance around in their spaces um, in in a in a very animated way. So I mean they are in the style of those sorts of things I, I think is is probably fair to say.
2: What those manuscripts have in common is that they came from Canterbury. Uh, Most of them were from St. Augustine's Abbey. Junius XI was probably from the cathedral, and, and the two were literally a stone's throw from one another. So, I think the designer must have known the Canterbury Library. The designer may have known other libraries as well, which haven't survived for us. But I think it's certain that the designer knew Canterbury manuscripts. Uh, Harley 603 was Canterbury. The uh, Prudentius manuscript you mentioned was a Canterbury manuscript. The Utrecht Salter, which is the original of Harley 603, which the designer also knew, that was in Canterbury from about 1100. So um, the... Tradition of illustrating a narrative as opposed to using pictures to illuminate a book. The illustration tradition is very much a Canterbury thing in England. So these, what what Michael called the the spirited figures, that's a Canterbury-style thing, isn't it? It's time for one more interruption from me in this episode.
1: Clearly, there is a lot to talk about in terms of the design mind behind the tapestry. And for me, it's marvellous to think of some medieval monk poring over those illuminated manuscripts in an abbey library and thinking how an image could be repurposed to fit this new narrative that he was being asked to retell. It's a little reminder that every move in this process must surely have been very measured, because without the benefit of copying devices and with the cost of raw materials, time and money must surely have been serious considerations in what was done and how it was done. Now, that's not to say that mistakes weren't made, and it's the mistakes, when we see them, that can be particularly instructive to us today. So let's chat about some of those errors. We need need to... um... Uh, trot on a bit and, and cover a couple more points. Uh, as we've mentioned errors and mistakes a couple of times here. I wonder, um, that's a, a fruitful thing to just chat about for a second, to what we can learn about mistakes in the tapestry and in the design and manufacture. Uh, now, Alex, I know um, you could say something about the joining of the panels and uh, and the errors there and what that tells us about um, how these panels were actually put together. Because as we talked about, there were different panels to start with that were worked um, uh, independently or separately or perhaps as part of a, a, a wider project but they have to be joined up at some point to make the larger whole so how, how how do we know what went on in that joining process
0: um well the joining up process is quite interesting actually um so by studying the scene points um scene one is particularly interesting because um there is a mistake there as you mentioned um particularly in the dividing line of the upper border. There's also, to a lesser extent, one in the dividing line of the lower border, um, where there's a, a big gap between the two lines um, and they don't meet at the join. Um, and then if you look at those particular lines in detail, you can actually see that um, they are there are ends of threads slightly further on. Um, and they, this works uh, all the seams all the way along where the embroidery was stopped short of the seams. The seams, the two panels were then sewn together and then um, the embroidery was worked over the top of the joins. So it, you see the continuous narrative that we have today. Um, and it appears that it seemed one in particular that the borderline at the top um, on the first panel was stitched lower down than the borderline on The second panel and then when they join the seams together and try to join the lines up they didn't match um now this is the same at the bottom but the difference isn't quite as bad and so they did join them up and you get this little slope this little hillock at the bottom um so that's why we can argue that the different panels work simultaneously and then they came together to be joined um, with functional stitching and then someone else worked them over the top that doesn't answer the question about um about mistakes but it tells you how they would join together
1: <laughs> no that's what well, it 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 kind of does both um gail have you have you spotted any uh, good mistakes in the tapestry good that, mistakes. Uh, that have informed you of anything <laughs> no
2: no my my the mistakes person but i have been looking at the, uh, <laughs> recently at um, things that intrude into the borders. When, when the main register intrudes into the borders, uh, a building goes, goes up into the border, and so the the regular border pattern is, is suspended. And quite often they have to add an unpaired beast or bird to fill the border. And in one place they do it quite cleverly because they colour it the same as the previous creature, which Already has a partner which is coloured differently, so they give you this illusion that it's one of a pair, but actually it's a one-off. And they they do that with the odd beast several times. Um, there's a, an odd wolf or dog howling under King Edward's coffin, for instance, which which really conveys the the grief of bereavement, but that is a one-off creature and its space has to be filled so they have to add another single creature at another point to to make up the difference.
3: Michael what's your favourite mistake? Well one of my favourite ones is one of the ships in the tapestry because it's it's one of the sails where it's shown as a most of the ships in the tapestry have sort of triangular um, sails but there's one ship that appears to have a square sail. And obviously um, many scholars have looked at it in the past and they've said, oh, well, this says something about when they were kind of putting the masts up and the sails out and this is how they kind of bellowed out. But actually what you have there is originally a triangular sail because you can see the outline stitch of the triangle, which has then been infilled completely incorrectly. They've just gone over a bigger space and filled the whole of it out to kind of create this square sail so um so that's one of my favorites and there's another one where there's a guy in one of the battle scenes um who has his con. his has his the coif under his so the male kind of um i'd say what would you say kind of hat if you like under his um is his helmet going over the helmet so it's kind of like the other way around um so this helmet sort of goes over the top of the coif underneath it's a bit it's a bit of an oddity so there's things like that which for me are absolutely fascinating because it sort of suggests that um the embroiders have done their work and then someone hasn't picked up on these kind of things which seem to me like really glaring errors and you know that opens a question to me you know why did they never do anything about it you know why did they just leave it as it was so that does
1: that does bring up the question of quality control. Now, look, we need we need to um, be moving towards a, a conclusion a bit here. But I'm just going to ask you a, a very a very trite and silly question: um, Is is the tapestry actually any good? Is the quality of the embroidery good quality or not? You know, we just talked about some of the mistakes, but is it actually a high quality piece of work? Alex, you're in a in a in a very good place to answer that, given that you do this work yourself.
0: So the quick answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is yes because um, uh, when you take into account its size uh, and the project as a whole um, and the consistency of the stitch work throughout I know Michael suggested that the stitching does change towards the end but you can see that there's a consistency throughout that the onlooker wouldn't have necessarily seen. We notice changes in consistency because we're studying it up close and personal. You can tell it's been worked by people who are working at the top of their game within wool and linen. And um, just because it doesn't have silk work or gold thread or pearls or jewels involved in it doesn't mean that it's not high quality. Um, and, it's, and because we're so used to looking at the fineness of silk work. It makes us think that the bare tapestry isn't of such a good quality standard, but actually it is when you take into account the materials that are being used um, and how it's been executed. Thanks. Gail, how
2: how do you assess the the quality of the the tapestry? I think it's high quality. It's so dynamic. Each creature, human being is an individual. And it's been so carefully thought out. If you have a row of riders, you don't get any two in the same colours with the same coloured tack or the same coloured horse. Uh, Each creature is an individual. So that's not mechanical. Like you sometimes get in a manuscript, you just get a a row of fronts of horses and they haven't got enough legs, you know. Uh, It's just been produced without thinking too much. This has been so carefully thought through. And also the messages in it, I think, are pretty subtle.
1: I, I i agree i think there is power in this and i i you know i see the i like the faces looking out of the tower waiting for for harold's ship to return or, or the or the power of the woman taking away um her child from from a from the burning house before the um uh before the battle um so i see a lot of power in it but i'm not i'm not an experienced uh embroiderer so um michael what what do you think do you think it's a, a good quality or not?
3: Um, I think from my perspective, what I find kind of fascinating about the embroidery is to what extent, I mean, it's kind of skilled com- comparatively to what you have at the time. I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking in terms of other sorts of objects I'm f- more familiar with in terms of how, how they're constructed. So, you know, uh, medieval finds, etc. that's kind of reported um, to us through the Paul's Antiquity Scheme. And, you, you know, with those objects, you see a craftsmanship in lots of things that is not easy to replicate these days. So I suppose the question to Alex and Gail that I sort of have is, I can understand that these people are, are highly skilled compared with many embroiderers perhaps um, today, or we would rate them as as highly um, skilled embroiderers. But how how particular were they within the context of their day? If, if we're thinking that there's, a lot of people doing um, textile work, embroidery work, as from a day-to-day activity from when they're very small. Um, is it the case that lots of people could reach this, you know, relatively high level of embroidery work, or is it really even in those days that it would just be a small number of people?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, allow Alex Gale to answer that, but um, I'm gonna put one more thing because we we need to. Get to an end. I'm going to ask you to offer um, concluding thoughts, if you have them, on on the tapestry as a physical artifact. If you want to answer Michael's point as well, then please do. But also, if uh, there's one other thing, um, if anybody wants to take a punt on how long it would have taken to make the tapestry, I'm happy to receive your views on that. Um, so let's go around. So Alex, um, do you want to do you want to be the first to uh, not really to jump no.
0: In <laughs> So to answer Michael's question first, I think that a lot of people could embroider and possibly up to such a standard. However, you've got to keep in mind that not a lot of people had the time to do so once they were having to do other jobs around their home, around their village, etc. It's generally people who were doing this as a profession and um, women who um, were able to do this as what I class as worthy occupation, um, who were consistently hitting that level. So I think I'm answering that as a double-edged thing, really. Uh, Thoughts about the bear, final thought. There are no final thoughts about the bear tapestry. This This is the amazingness of the tapestry, because once you think you've answered something, it actually opens up more questions And I think for me personally, I love the fact that you can learn so much, not just about the bear tapestry as a hanging and as an object, but about the people who made it. And uh, and therefore, embroidery more widely and as part of early medieval material culture. And that's what I like about it. Not just that it's this amazing object, which it is, that has come down to us today, but the fact that it fits into this wider picture and we can learn so much more about that wider picture from this particular object. Um, And I can't remember what your last question was.
1: You're trying to avoid it. I was asking you how long it took to make.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That question. (laughs) So... I'm going to say I have no idea because I haven't. I've avoided the question actually um, when I've been doing research. Even though Gail Gail's the reason I'm actually I've studied the bed tapestry in the first place. I did try to avoid it as part of my PhD research because everyone has an opinion on it. But I would say that um, things like bayer stitch or glade work, whatever you want to call it, worked in wool um, is actually a quicker stitch to work than you would think. So the time taken, you look at this massive hanging and you think that would have taken years and years and years, even with teams of people working on it. But actually, it would have taken a long time, but perhaps not as long as we think it would. There we go. I'm hedging okay. my bets and not answering the question. I could that's become a, a politician. <laughs> that's
1: a good answer. That's a good answer. <laughs> um, uh, Michael, do you, what are your your final thoughts on the Tap Street as a, as a physical artefact?
3: Well, I think in some ways it's a bit like Alex. I mean, I'm kind of fascinated to know what we don't know about it. And I think the, the, there's a big possibility over the next few years um, with the conservation work that's going to happen on the tapestry and the, and the academic along, study alongside it, that we could learn a lot more about the people um, who made the tapestry and the resources they used um, through these different scientific techniques. So I, I suppose, you know, from that perspective, I think it's we've only just started um, researching, understanding um, the people behind the Bayer Tapestry. Um, so, in terms of the how long it took to produce, I've got no idea really, but I reckon about I don't know fifty-three days and a half, and maybe a couple of hours on top. Um, but if you were, if you wanted me to make it, I can you know invoice you based on you know how much time I think it would it would take to um, to produce. But that that's my best guess.
1: Okay, Gail, what um, you can have the last word. What's what's your
2: what's your concluding thoughts on the on the tapestry as a as a physical artifact? That every time I look at it, I see something new, and I love it. <laughs> and do you do you have any sense about how long
1: it might have taken to make?
2: Well, what do you mean by make? I mean, we we, we have to think about the conception of it, the ordering of it, what the patron, whoever it was, asked for. Um, The uh, inscription spelling would suggest that somebody dictated in Norman Latin and somebody wrote it down who was used to writing English. So that transmission, I want this, this, and this, and then the interpretation of I want this, this, and this, into a structured narrative with um, recurrent devices, recurrent scenes, you know, the throne, enthroned figure recurring and recurring, the crossing water recurring and recurring. All these structural devices needed a lot of thinking out. Then the drawing of the sketch, then the draftsmanship that transferred the cartoon onto the embroidery, on, onto the, the linen, uh, and then after that, the embroidery. So I, I I think assembling the materials probably took a long time. The logistics of that would would have taken a long time. So I think you're talking years. Two years? Two years. There we are.
0: <laughs> oh, Gail, you shouldn't have said that. Oh, yeah. I,
1: I, I, left, I left a pause and you... <laughs>
3: You've got to admit, Dave, I'm better value for money. (laughs) (laughs) 53 days, I could do it a lot quicker.
0: And I'm just going to carry on eternally, like I am with my projects at the moment.
1: (laughs) So that's the end of episode two of History Extra's Unraveling the Biotapestry series. Thanks for listening and thanks to our experts today, Professor Michael Lewis, Professor Gail Owen Crocker and Dr Alex Lester-Macon. Hopefully you'll agree that there is much of interest to learn from looking behind the story and thinking about the tapestry as a physical object itself. Next time we'll get into the story though, because episode three is all about what the tapestry is trying to tell us. And just as a reminder, the story of the bio-tapestry, Unraveling the Norman Conquest, written by me, David Musgrove, and Michael Lewis, is published by Thames & Hudson in April 2021. And we have a feature on what's missing from the tapestry in the March issue of BBC History magazine. Plus, go to historyextra.com and you'll find all manner of great tapestry content, including a piece by Alexandra Lester-Macon on the making of the tapestry. So do go and have a look at that.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman.